0: Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I'd like to welcome you into Crossroads. If you're uh, here with us physically, if you're joining us online, we're glad that you are are here this morning. Uh, I wonder too how many of you remembered uh, the detour before you got there and realized that you couldn't go the normal route you come to to church. Anybody? I'm just glad I'm not the only one. So. uh, As I was backing, we live down in Olathe, uh, just south of College Avenue, so as I was backing out of my driveway, I'm telling myself, you know, don't don't get up here at the stoplight and go right, go left, because K7 is just like a mile to my west, and I can go right up there, and that's what I'm telling myself. And then I went through the motions at 6.15 this morning, and uh, it dawned on me. That I was going the wrong direction about the time that I was seeing the sign that said 435 North closed when you split to go onto 435. So I got to do a little detour and come on up Lackman and take the scenic route and I'm here. So no worries, we're here, we're good. So Uh, I was thinking this week back to when I was a kid. One of my favorite hobbies was collecting baseball cards. I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s, and Kind of when baseball cards had kind of made a bit of a comeback, they had been popular with the generation before, and then dipped and were coming back. And so over the course of time, I would <clears throat> collect packs of cards, or I would collect individual teams of cards or what, whatnot, and uh, somewhere when I was probably around nine or so, my dad started buying me for Christmas each year the complete set of Topps baseball cards. Topps just being one of the brands, and so probably somewhere from like, 1989 to 92, somewhere thereabouts, I got the complete set, basically a card for every player and the managers, and I would take them out of the box and organize them by team and, and put them you know, back in the box that way with little markers because I didn't have many friends at the time, and um, I mean, I still don't, but that's beside the point, different topic, different day, but uh, yeah, like I, I kind of lived through my baseball cards, like that's how I made the players come to life in my room before the internet existed, and, and so uh, I, I would collect those, and eventually I got to where I could find large boxes of cards, whether through a garage sale, through uh, like a card shop that went out of business one time, I bought a, a box of like 5,000 cards for 10 bucks or something, and I think by the time I had reached my peak, I had somewhere between fifteen and 20,000 baseball cards. And I discovered in my early teen years what a Beckett magazine was. Some of you might know what a Beckett is. I don't even know if they still make Becketts, but a Beckett magazine came out once a month, and it was a price guide. It would show you the value of all the cards. Now, most of what I had weren't worth much, you know, maybe a dime, maybe a nickel. I'd get a card worth a dollar or two, and those are the ones, you know, you put in the sleeve to protect them because, you know, if I get enough of these, then, you know, maybe I'll cash my own way. My cousin Aaron is about nine years older than me, so when I was getting into cards, this is about the time he was finishing high school and going to college and didn't really want his cards. so he gave me a few boxes of old cards of his, and it was from the early 80s, and as I was going through there, I come across this card. This is a 1984 Tops, Ryan Sandberg. Now, if you know baseball, Ryan Sandberg, Hall of Fame second baseman for the Cubs. Uh, I grew up, I'm a Cardinals fan, but grew up watching the Cubs on WGN every afternoon, and so Ryan Sandberg was like, you know, the lead character on one of my favorite daily TV shows that I watched every day. And and so I come across this card. Well, I look in my Beckett magazine and this card's worth $50. Now, when you're like 11 years old, if you've got something worth 50 bucks, you're practically a millionaire, right? And so I'm telling my parents, I need to go sell this card. It's worth 50 bucks. It's like, it's irresponsible not to go sell this card. And it wasn't in mint condition. My parents knew this, and, and I thought, well, I, could, I can make it mint condition. You know, I can smash it under some books and flatten those corners, and somebody will give me 50 bucks for this card. And my parents knew what I didn't understand at the time. Nobody was going to give me 50 bucks for this card because they would then sell it for $50. They would pay me like half of that, assuming that I could even get the full value out of it. And, and I never quite got this. Until one day, my mom finally said it in a way that it stuck with me. She said this, Kurt, something is only worth what another person is willing to pay for it. And that line hit me. And even at like 12 years old, it stuck with me in a way that it stayed with me all the way up to today. And it's applied to far more than just baseball cards. Uh, it's, It's funny, a year ago this weekend, we were here, sneaking in with, you know, everybody was still wearing masks, so we could sneak in. We sat on the back row back when there were still chairs by the window because I was here for my final interview for this job. And it was a few weeks later that it was offered to me. And so... We were here, and and then we got back to our our house in Oregon, and we went through the the, the final plans to start our move, which included selling our house and then coming here and buying a house. And uh, We were in constant communication with uh, Vince and Barbara Walk as far as helping to find a house. This line had a whole new meaning when it came to shopping for houses because if you've looked at housing market right now, something is only worth what somebody else is willing to pay for it. And Right now, people are willing to pay an astronomical number for a house, we would bid uh, more than the asking price and get outbid on several of the houses that we looked at. But this can also be made personal because rather than saying something is only worth more or as, as what another, much as another person is willing to pay for, we could say someone is only worth what another person is willing to pay for him or for her. We've been in this series the last several weeks called Check It Out, really since the beginning of the year, going theme by theme through the Bible. In the last three weeks, and then counting today four weeks, we've really focused on Jesus. And today we're going to get into the sacrifice of Jesus, because as we've led up to this point, we talked about the problem that we have with sin and how God sent the prophets and God sent the law and God sent all these different ways to try and help us get back to him because we had broken that covenant with him. We had broken that relationship with him. But ultimately, we weren't able to do it ourselves, so it required a sacrifice. And that sacrifice was often a small lamb or a goat or maybe once a year the high priest would would sacrifice a bull. Sacrifice had to be given to God to atone for what we had done, but a sacrifice had to be continual and a sacrifice required payment. But as we're going to see through Jesus, that, that sacrifice required payment, but what God required, God provided. What God required, God provided. Today we are looking at the end of Jesus' time on earth. And our story really picks up in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, if you aren't familiar with kind of the geography of Jerusalem, you've got the city and the town of Jerusalem kind of on a hill, and then there's this valley called the Kidron Valley that's not really very, very far across. It's not really very deep. And on the other side is the Mount of Olives. And as its name would suggest, it's full of olive trees. It's full of olive groves. And one of those is referred to as a garden, and we call it Gethsemane. And Gethsemane comes from the Hebrew word that describes an olive press, Gatshamim, which is basically the olives are crushed and pressed so that something more valuable comes out of them, the oil that it was used not just for food purposes but for medicinal purposes and all sorts of purposes in that world back then. Jesus is in that garden praying. And as he's praying, the weight of the world is crushing him to the point where he's sweating drops of blood. The capillaries in his forehead are bursting open due to the the stress that is on his heart and mind and soul in that moment. And as he's praying, and as he's asking God to take this cup from him and give, give me another way... To do your work. His disciple Judas turns him over to the Jewish leaders, to the, to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders. And what follows in the coming hours is, is a, ser- a series of five sham trials in front of different uh, governing bodies and, 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 and authoritative people. And through the course of this night, not a single formal charge is ever given to Jesus, let alone a conviction. Yet he's faced with false witnesses and and no evidence that he's not allowed to cross-examine. And despite all of this, despite not a shred of anything being put against him, by the middle of the next afternoon, he's hanging on a cross dead. But before we jump into this part of the story, we're going to jump back a few thousand years And look at something that was written at the beginning of the Bible. We'll be in Deuteronomy 21. If you've got a Bible and want to follow, if not, it's up here on the screen. But Deuteronomy 21, we read something that to me is just completely fascinating when it comes to this story. Deuteronomy 21, this is part of the law that Moses gave. We we think about the law with Leviticus, but Deuteronomy expands on that. But verse 18, we read this law. It says, If someone has a stubborn and a rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, "This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He's a drunk, uh, a glutton, and a drunkard." Excuse me. That all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You shall purge the evil from among you, and all Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Now file this away. I've got three kids. I talk about them a lot as a pastor They're fair game, okay? Like, they're just told that when they're born. Sorry, but the next 20 years of your life, you're an example, okay? Three kids. My oldest, Elsie, is a fourth grader. Uh, my, my, my second daughter, Amelie, is a first grader. And then I've got Titus, three-and-a-half-year-old son, my only son. Uh, he'll be four coming up here in June. Just got him enrolled in preschool. God bless their souls at, at the preschool, Titus is, we'll just say spirited. <laughs> he is an intense little person. And if you have been in any sermon that I've preached since like my very first sermon when I was here in, in July was a Titus story. If you've been here for any of my sermons or if you follow me on Facebook or let's just be honest, if you hang out in the foyer for any length of time after service, you probably know a little bit about Titus. He's intense. He's intense. And he's quiet, and he's just on the go. I wouldn't call him rebellious. I mean, he's not even four yet. Yeah, he's entered that phase where he doesn't want to do what he's told, or he does specifically what he's told not to do. But again, he's three and four. That that seems to be like a law that they have to do at that age, right? But I wouldn't go so far as to call him rebellious. Some of you, though, know what it's like to have a rebellious child. Maybe you've got the rebellious son the one who has spit in your face and and dumped out all the things that you have have taught him to do. Maybe he's turned away from God and rejected the faith that you gave him as he grew up. Maybe he's broken the law. Maybe he's even in prison for that. Uh, If that's you, let me just say, I can't think uh, of a single possible instance for my son, or any of my children for that matter, to ever do anything so great that it would break and strain my love enough that I would be willing to hand them over to be killed for what they did. I just can't think of that. I, I, can't, I, I can't come to this idea that I would be willing to turn them over to the authorities to be killed for what they had done. And I don't think that I say this because I'm, I'm telling God, like, forget your laws. I'm not following this one, and if that's the case, too bad. It's not like I'm thumbing my nose at him. I think God just wired me in a way that I can't possibly do that. My love for them is too great to be broken to that degree. And I say that with some confidence because I would dare say that applies to the rest of you in here as well. And I just simply say God didn't wire us that way. And in fact, in the vast array of Jewish history, which is extremely detailed and extremely accurate, there's not one example of any Jewish man ever obeying this law not one and so you might ask well why would God give us a law when he knows that we can't obey it simple because God knew he could now, God's son is Jesus. We've talked about this the last few weeks. Jesus certainly wasn't a rebellious son. He certainly wasn't a glutton or a drunkard. He wasn't disobedient. In fact, we just said from that story in the Garden of Gethsemane, he listened to his father and he obeyed him all the way to the cross. And yet God still turned him over to the leaders of Israel to be killed on that cross. And, and, and we read this and we see that from the very beginning... Back near the beginning of the Bible, God is at work, and the gospel message is already being laid out. We have a problem, and we can't fix it, and God will take care of it for us through Jesus on the cross. And here's what's even more fascinating about this this, this passage in Deuteronomy. Because he doesn't just talk about what needs to be done to the son, but go on and look at the next verse, Deuteronomy 21, verse 22. He says, if someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on that pole overnight. Be sure to bury it the same day, because anyone who's hung on a pole is under God's curse. We read this with hindsight, and we know what they're talking about. Jesus is going to be executed on a pole. But what's fascinating about this particular passage is this was written somewhere around 1400 B.C. The crucifixion wasn't invented until the mid-500s B.C. 900 years before the crucifixion was even a thing, God wrote this verse. Or God gave the words to Moses for him to write it. He was at work over a thousand years before this happened. The crucifixion, we read about this and we know about this and we, we, we look back with hindsight at, at how brutal the crucifixion was. It was invented in the mid-500s from groups like the Persians and the Carthaginians or the Macedonians, some of those uh, kind of Middle Eastern groups today. Uh, they're the ones that invented it and they used it extensively, but it was a few hundred years later by the first century that the Romans perfected it. The Romans made crucifixion an art form. And understand this if you don't know, crucifixion wasn't just like the default mode of capital punishment. It wasn't used on the the common murderer or the common thief. It it wasn't like our lethal injection might be today. The crucifixion was reserved when they needed to make a statement. It was reserved for the worst of the worst. Mass murderers, uh, terrorists, revolutionaries, people who were a threat to the establishment of Rome. That's who was put on a cross Crucifixion was used in this manner because it was an extremely public and extremely painful and extremely slow form of execution. Uh, the, 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 the person's body would be uh, stretched out and often shoulders and joints dislocated to make them fit on the cross. Long, thick nails were driven through the hands or the wrists, through the nerves in the hands and wrists. As they were put on the cross, nails were driven through the tops of their feet at an angle that made pushing up to breathe extremely difficult. And that's what they would have to do, is they would push themselves up to breathe, and over the course of of several hours there, eventually their heart would be beating maybe triple or four times the normal rate to try and pump blood with oxygen through their body. Their diaphragm would often wear out, sometimes rip from the strain on it, and their body would eventually go into hypovolemic shock, and that's what would ultimately kill them. And they hung there. And they hung there as they did this, experiencing a pain that was so great, that was so beyond the scope of anything humans had experienced to this point, the Romans actually had to create a new word to describe it. Because they didn't have anything that they could describe this. The word that they created is translated to English as excruciating. This was all done on a cross that was very low to the ground, shorter than the stage is, on a very public road out for everybody to see. Imagine if we did a a crucifixion right up here where everybody on 435 could see it. Or let's make it a little more personal. We'll, We'll do it like in front of Union Station so everybody that passes by can see because they wanted everybody to see what was going on. This was an example that was being made, and it was low to the ground so that people could come by and inflict shame upon this person, as much shame as there was pain. They could spit on them. They could hurl insults. They could hit them if they wanted to. This person would be stripped naked and and their their bowels and their, their bladder being voided involuntarily all afternoon. As much shame as could possibly be inflicted as they received their just punishment. This was beyond just an execution. People often hung there, not just for a few hours like Jesus did, but often for several days until their body finally died. And it didn't stop there because once they died, their bodies continued to hang on the cross and rot and fall apart until they eventually, literally, fell apart and fell off the cross. The crucifixion meant maximum pain with maximum humiliation in the process. And here's Jesus, our sinless, blameless, Messiah, the Son of God, literally God in the flesh. And here he is being led to this cross, the fulfillment of everything the Jewish people had been wanting and expecting for centuries, the fulfillment of every desire and need they ever had, being led to this cross, tried for crimes he didn't commit, sentenced to a death he didn't deserve, the Lamb of God being led to the slaughter for our sins. We read about this in the various Gospels. And maybe you've even seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, which has got an R rating simply for the graphic violence depicted. I don't even think that does justice to what actually happened that day. So we read it in the Gospels and we, we read what Jesus went through. And I love how John writes it in his Gospel. John, the apostle whom Jesus loved, who was the only one that stayed there and watched... He says this in John nineteen verse sixteen. He says the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. I skipped on to verse twenty eight. It says later, knowing that everything had been a, been finished, so that Scripture could be fulfilled. Jesus said, "I am thirsty." A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And all of this, because we aren't capable of reconciling ourselves to God. We aren't capable of fixing our own problem. We talked about this problem back at the beginning of this series. We weren't able to do this on our own. And because of that, Jesus received what I deserved on that day. Jesus received what you deserved on that day. He went to the cross for us, to pay a price for us, to die for our sins. But let me just tell you what I want to talk about for the rest of our time this morning is what happened on the cross that day was about so much more than just an execution, Jesus was crucified because he was a threat. He was considered a revolutionary. And he wanted to make an example out of him. And what happened that day was so much more than just simply an execution because of crimes against the state. Maybe you're visiting here today. Maybe this is your first time with us. Maybe you're unfamiliar with the gospel story. Maybe you're watching online and, and you, you, you think, well, oh, I, I drive by churches and I see a cross out there. And, or or, or you, you come and you watch us online or you watch us here and you see the cross and lights over my head, over Brad's head most weeks. And you go, well, I know that means Jesus and Jesus died on the cross. And yeah, that's great. But have you ever stopped to see what the cross of Jesus really, truly means? Have you ever gotten into what it actually means in your life and in my life? Because let me tell you, there's so much more to that. In the book of Romans, Paul tells us all about the power of the gospel. And he tells us about how righteousness with God is achieved through faith, not by following the law. And I love how he presents Romans. I'm one of these, I need to learn something so I can learn the next same kind of person. I'm, like, I'm very process-minded with this. And that's how he lays out his writings. And so for the first two and a half chapters of Romans, Paul tells us how much of a problem we have with sin, that we are so lost in our sin that it causes us to sin even more, and that we're blinded by it. And he goes through this idea that without God, we have no hope. And he kind of paints this dark picture about what sin has done to us, and then he gets into the latter part of Romans chapter 3. And he starts it off with two words that probably don't get your attention, but they probably should, because despite everything he's just said, Romans chapter 3, verse 21, he says, but now. But now, despite all of that, here we go. And what he proceeds with are 11 verses that might be the entire Bible in a nutshell, the entire message of the gospel in a nutshell. I've I've heard the the Bible and the New Testament uh, specifically described like a mountain range where there aren't really low points, but there's just peaks and, and, and higher peaks. And Romans 3, 21 through 31 might be Mount Everest. It might be the highest peak of all. Because as Paul describes this, he says these words, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This line is one a lot of you are probably familiar with. It's a pretty well-known line from the Bible. And even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, maybe this is a line that you have heard. And maybe you're like me. It would, I grew up in church and I heard this line my whole life, but I think I misheard it. or Maybe I was taught wrong or maybe I just read it wrong or, or whatever. I've always read this verse to say, for all have sinned and fallen short. That's not what it says. The older I get, the more I study. My grammar nerd kicks in, and I realize Paul changes verb tense. He gives you a past tense and then something else. He says we have sinned. That's past tense. And specifically, it's what's called an aorist verb, meaning that it's a past tense verb. It's a past tense action, but it's like a snapshot, meaning this could have happened at any point in history he's not describing one specific moment in history it's something that any of us could have done and all of us have done at some point in history now let's be honest we've done it repeatedly at some point in history but we have sinned and then he switches and we fall short that's a present tense verb meaning right now in this very moment we fall short we have sinned and we currently repeatedly fall short. Basically, what Paul is saying here is that we are flawed humans who cannot escape our lives of imperfection. He's saying that we we lack the ability to walk straight. We're going to fall. We're not capable of helping ourselves out of the damage that we've done to ourselves. In other words, I look at this kind of like this. No matter what makes us different, No matter where we come from, no matter what we look like, or or what language we speak, or what economic uh, social class you fall into, or how you vote, et cetera, whatever makes us different, we all have one thing in common. Every single one of us lives an imperfect life, repeatedly falling short of God's glory and righteousness. To achieve that, we needed a sacrifice made for us, but what God provided, God required. I'm sorry, what God required, God provided. And we read about that in the next couple of verses. In a passage that describes the cross of Christ so beautifully. Because he goes on in verse 23, it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Three verses completely describe what Jesus did on the cross. That horrific death that he faced, that unimaginable torture he endured, is summed up in those three verses. Because in these three verses, Paul gives us three words, three statements that tell us what the cross of Jesus did, how it was layered and what it did for us. The first word he gives us is the word justified. Because we're justified by his grace as a gift. Justification is this idea that you're set free from the legal punishment for your crime. It doesn't declare you innocent. It doesn't take away the not guilty or the, the, the guilty verdict, but it takes away the punishment that comes with it. And instead it's it's taken by someone else. Romans 6 tells us the wages of sin is death. But it goes on to say, but the gift of life, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. It's kind of like you're convicted of a crime, but then the judge takes the punishment for you. I heard a story one time about this couple who had lived in this apartment for a long time, and they both lost their jobs, and they had nowhere to go, and and couldn't afford to move out, and, and they just stayed. And the landlord asked for money, but they had no money to give, but they refused to leave because they had nowhere else to go. And after a year, he finally took them to court, And he sued them for a year's worth of rent, plus utilities, plus he had to take out a loan to pay for his own life because he wasn't getting money from them. And there was no evidence to support them whatsoever. They weren't even really trying to defend themselves. They knew they were guilty. And the judge slammed down his gavel and declared them guilty. And ordered them to pay back every dollar plus interest, thousands upon thousands of dollars, to this landlord. And as he declared him guilty and as he rendered the sentence, he put his gavel on the desk and he reached over into his desk drawer and he pulled out his checkbook and he wrote a check. And he gave it to the couple and said, now give this to your landlord and go get things right. It's kind of like the story of Jesus with the woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter 8. She's caught in this act, and she's thrown at the feet of Jesus, and the, the religious leaders say, the law says we should stone her. What, what do you think? Because they knew whatever he answered was going to be, they could trap him on it. They just didn't expect the answer they got. Sure, go ahead and do it, Jesus says. But you who has no sin, you start. You throw the first stone. And one by one, their stones at the ground, and they walk away. And the woman eventually looks up, and Jesus says, where are your accusers? She says, I I don't see any. And he goes, and and I don't condemn you either. But go and stop sinning. Like he doesn't just say, oh, you got away with one. He doesn't say that to her. He he calls her out on it. But he doesn't hold it against her. That's justification. Because he knew that he was going to take the punishment for what she had done. The second word we see is the word redemption. Redemption. It says that we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption refers to slavery and being set free from slavery, having your life given back to you. In this particular culture, uh, slavery was very uh, prominent. The Romans had slaves, and often they had them in a form of indentured servanthood, where they would say, if you work for me for five years, you'll have your freedom. There was one problem with that there was one person who got to dictate the terms of one's indentured servanthood, and that was the slave owner. And nobody could could fight that. So five years into your service of your five-year plan, he might say, you know what, we need five more years. There was nothing you could do about it. And if you tried to escape, you would often be beaten or killed for it. And we've seen this in our own nation's history. We've seen this rear its ugly head time and time again across our world. But redemption, redemption refers to an act that happened every so often, not, not very often, but every once in a while. Somebody would purchase a slave. And they would take that person home and then say, there you go, you're free. You don't owe me anything. I don't want a thing from you. They would purchase their freedom. That's redemption. You've been given your life back. Jesus purchased your life with his blood. Our, our sin required a sacrifice, and Jesus offered that for us, setting us free specifically from this slavery to sin. If you're stuck in sin, you're stuck in an addiction, that's slavery to sin. It's something that we struggle to get out of, and sometimes when we try to get out of it, it actually makes things worse for us. Jesus sets you free from that. His blood sets you free from that. And we have an enemy that is told that if we mention the name of Jesus, the enemy has to flee. He's not welcome there. So remember that if you're struggling today. You've been redeemed. Your life has been given back to you because Jesus set you free. The third word we see is one that's a bit of a controversial word that's not even found in some Bibles. Because it says there that that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This refers to us being set free from God's wrath in response to our sin. And I say propitiation is a bit of a controversial word because we don't like to talk about God's wrath. It's kind of been whitewashed a little bit in modern Christianity. And in fact, if you use an NIV Bible or a New Living Translation Bible, you're not even going to see this word in it. And I'm not trying to knock the NIV, that's what I'm preaching from this morning. But it's a word that we don't like to talk about. So instead of propitiation, you're going to see sacrifice of atonement, which is an accurate statement. Because that's what Jesus was. He was a sacrifice that atoned for our sins. But why did we need atoned for? Because we're subject to God's wrath. That's why. And we don't like to talk about God's wrath. I mean, how many of you, if I said, I'm preaching on God's wrath next week, you can't wait to get here? Hmm. You're Probably not many of you. And if I said, hey, we're going to preach on God's love, you're going to be here. Because we want to talk about God's love and God's mercy and God's grace. But you can't have mercy and grace without wrath. One of them is not necessary if the other one doesn't exist. And to, to understand this, all you've got to do is flip through the Old Testament. Because you see examples of the wrath of God all through the Old Testament. I mean, what's the number one kid's story we teach in Sunday school? Noah's Ark. What's Noah's Ark? It's about God's wrath. <laughs> he floods the entire planet. Why? Because people were so evil. And it turned away from him so much. Or the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. They had turned so much that God knew none of them would possibly turn back. And he destroys them. And if we want a good glimpse of what God's wrath truly means, folks, we don't need to look any further than the cross of Jesus. Because God took out on this innocent man, on God in the flesh, God took out every ounce of his anger and frustration that he would have on mankind from that point moving forward. On Jesus took it all out from from what he had from what I was going to do to him and what you were going to do to him and he poured it out on Jesus and we may not like to talk about it but we have to understand that we were set free from his wrath through what Jesus did on the cross for us and we look at that idea of justification and redemption and propitiation or atonement and we say well yes God took our sins away but it was so much more than just that. Because he not only took away your sin, the cross of Jesus also took away your shame and guilt that was associated with your sin. This is where it gets personal for us. Because again, in, in Romans, Paul builds. I mentioned this a moment ago. He builds up. And in the first seven chapters, he talks about everything that we struggle with. Whether that's sin, whether that's faith, whether that is peace, whether that is uh, the new identity in Christ, all these, these things that we struggle with in our belief. And he gets to Romans 8, another Mount Everest of the Bible. And again, he starts it off the same way. But now, but now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. If you highlight stuff in your Bibles this should be highlighted. And if you don't highlight in your Bibles, this should be highlighted. This should be written down and memorized. Because what he's telling you is simple. It does not matter what you have done. It doesn't matter what your past looks like. God loves you. And he's ready to release you from all of that because he's already done the work. He just needs you to believe in him. He just needs you to accept him. It says, for those who are in Christ Jesus, he loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And it's hard for us to understand this because we don't fully understand how grace and mercy work because we aren't fully capable of offering that to other people. And maybe maybe you're here today and you're listening to this and you're wearing the sin that you've committed as a badge. And it's a badge you can't take off. But it's a sin everybody knows about. It's something that you did that you can't undo, and everybody knows it, and you're labeled with that, and it, it just brings shame to you. and And I think that you see that, and you can't take that off because you know deep down you can't forgive somebody who's done the same thing to you. And if that's the case, I mean, that's just that's natural. That's our human nature, because we don't understand these these concepts. And I've had conversations with people in the past who struggle to come to grips with Jesus and the forgiveness that comes to him. And they'll say things like, Kurt, you don't understand. You don't understand what I've done. I've hurt people. I've rejected God. I've spit in the face of, of, of Jesus. I, I've, I've sinned over and over again. There's no way he could forgive me. If that's you, let me just let me just tell you something. You want to know who wrote those words? Go, go back, one slide. You want to know who wrote those words? Somebody who spit in the face of Jesus. Somebody who rejected God. Somebody who sinned over and over again. Somebody who literally killed Christians. And guess what happens to him? God got a hold of him. And he accepted God, and God forgave him, and God turned him around. And then God used him to write the very words that shape my personal belief, that shape our faith, that shape this church. God used that man, maybe the most influential person to ever walk the planet outside of Jesus. It's the Apostle Paul. And God used him. And let me just say this to you today. Let me be very real to you today if, 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 if you're struggling with this. God sacrificed Jesus on the cross not just to forgive your sin, but to set you free from that sin the shame that comes with it. So let me be very, very clear. There is nothing, nothing that you have done in your life that the blood of of Jesus can't cover and forgive. Absolutely nothing. And I want you to understand that because the work of Jesus on the cross showed us and brought us mercy and grace from God. And it's easy to look at those two topics of mercy and grace and, and think they're kind of one and the same. And they, they kind of sort of are, but they're from different angles, kind of different, different perspectives here. Mercy is when we don't receive what we actually deserve. And grace is when we do receive what we don't deserve. I deserved death. I deserved that cross. But I wasn't given that cross. That's mercy. That's mercy. And instead, I deserve death, and I'm given life. That's grace. I'm getting what I don't deserve. And that's the same invitation that's extended to you today. If you've not accepted Jesus, if you've not accepted the grace of God, this is a great day to do that. We're heading into the Easter season, and, and Brad's going to tell you about Easter here in, a, in just a little bit. got something very special planned for it this year. Because it's all about the grace of Of God and the gift that was given to us on the cross of Jesus. But folks, I want you to hear me on this. The cross of Jesus. It doesn't just represent life. But it represents everything that God put in motion from the very beginning. And what he poured out on Jesus that day set you free and it set me free. And maybe it's best described in the words of John. And what might be the most famous quote of all time in all of history, when John said this, quoting Jesus, when he was talking to Nicodemus one night, he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish, but would have eternal life. Our sin required a sacrifice. And there's nothing that we could do to fix that. God required, God provided. And that goes for all of you. If you've not accepted Christ today, or to this point, He's provided Jesus for you, and all it takes is a simple prayer asking Him into your heart. I want to challenge you with that today. And I want to leave you with just a question. Just a question for you to chew on as we close this out today. What would you Be willing to sacrifice and give up, to follow the one who sacrificed and gave up everything for you. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for Jesus. So grateful, Lord, that he took the punishment that I deserved, that we all deserved. God, that he bore this barbaric, torturous death for me so that I could walk with you. So that I could experience your love in ways people before him hadn't been able to. So that I could have your Holy Spirit reside in my heart. And God, the same applies to everybody else out here too. God, that he came to the world to redeem the world, to reconcile us to you. God, I pray for hearts across the room today, for anybody who has not made you their Lord, God, that you would speak to their hearts. You would lead them to those of us on staff, those of us in the room. We would have those conversations with them. Because God, I want them all to experience your love the way I do. We're so grateful for your son. We pray in his name.